In fact, um, Pastor Ben and Alex, praise team, I don't know of a more appropriate song um, as we come to our message this morning than that. Glory, Gloria to God alone. If you don't have a sermon outline, there's men that are coming forward to give you one. Uh, The way we study the Bible, you will need it. Uh, this morning. So just lift your hand and they'll give one to you. If you're joining us online, you can always go to our website and download these notes that the congregation has. This morning, it is a four-pager as we look at that, but don't despair. The last page is homework. So uh, you have some homework um, for you to evaluate um, for yourselves, and uh, we'll, we'll see that just a little bit as we begin. We live in a day of idols. We live in a time where the world is prone toward idols. And what's interesting is, is that that is the era that we're in in this time before the redemption and the complete renewal of all things with Christ, that we will be prone toward idols. In fact, 1 John, perhaps one of the most poignant statements that is made is the very last sentence that we look at today. Now, I did not lie when I told you that Easter Sunday was going to be the last message in 1 John. That was not a lie. That was simply a miscalculation. (laughs) Because as I studied for that last message, and I knew that 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 statement would be present and fit there, I was so burdened as I realized more and more. See, I'm learning too as I study. I'm learning too as I'm preaching. And so I just want you to know that I have been overwhelmed at the beautiful way in which God gives us an extremely important message. And he does it as so often using John's artistic way. He does it with a literary device here that's very powerful. And I want us to see this this morning. This really does help illuminate the whole message of John, the whole message of 1 John for us. And it is this simple statement, keep yourselves from idols. Well, let's see how this all fits together. First of all, if you're new with this especially, and maybe if you've been around the entire time for all 34 messages before, or all 33 messages before this, let's review for just a minute. First John is a massive fill it in warning. It's a massive warning to all who call themselves Christians to evaluate their faith. And the one below that is First John is a massive encouragement. So it's both a warning And it's an encouragement for those who rightly trust and live in Christ. Well, let's look at the warning for just a minute. So back up there, look at the warning. He's asking over and over, he's saying, do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, do you really get what that means? Do you really realize who Jesus was and what he did? And have you come to see him as your only hope of salvation? He was the promised one. Do you recognize that? Did you believe that? Do you believe that? Does he live as your Savior and your Lord? Well, look at the next one here. We see very prominent in 1 John is, do you love God's people? This is a warning. If you don't love God's people, it may may mean that you need to be converted. This is the church. Do you love the people for whom Christ died? Or have you um, collected excuses in why you will not serve them, why you will not engage with them, why you will not care for them, that you're too busy or you already have relationships or you've been offended in the past. 
You see, in the life of our church, we are seeking to be a true church that truly loves one another. That lo- You cannot love somebody that you do not know. That's the reason we care about fellowship. That's the reason that we eat together. That's the reason that we have community groups. That's the reason that we engage with one another. It's the reason we have name tags. It's the reason we have small groups. Because we believe that it is not a church to simply be a crowd. We believe a church is a family. It is a family of faith of whom God is the head. Christ is the head. So do you love God's people? If you don't love God's people, First John says, you don't love God. Well, then comes the other one. Over and over, he says, do you love God? Um, it's, it's an important thing to recognize that those who know God truly come to love God. And then also, notice the last one here, he's asking, do you obey God? Jesus made a big deal of this when he was present and with John preaching. We see that through the gospel of John. Over and over again in the gospel of John, Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to do what I say. Jesus would ask, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? This is how you live your life. Do you obey God? Do you, are you coming to know him? Are you coming to grow in him? Do you reflect his morality? Do you reflect his purity? Is your mind filled with the filth of the world? Do you imbibe the filth of the world in your entertainment? Do you imbibe the filth of the world in all of the the things that you're interested in? What do you do with your body? Does your body live in the morality of God, or do you live in the morality of the world? Are you sexually pure? Are you generous toward others? Are you humble and meek toward God? These are all the things that Jesus told us to do. And Jesus said, if you love me, if I'm really your savior, if you're really my child, you're going to live like it. It's not come and just add God as an additive for an activity or some type of placebo for your pain. No, there's a massive warning in 1 John to evaluate your faith and to ask yourself, am I really God's? Do I really live like I'm his child? But along with that massive warning is this incredible encouragement. And we notice this at the end of chapter 5 where we've been for the last few weeks True believers can have eternal life. They can know that God hears them. He answers their prayers. Verse 18, notice this on your, there in the middle. True believers can know that God has delivered them from sin and Satan. That's, that's clearly in verse 18 that we're just going to read in just a moment. Look at verse 19. True believers can know whose kingdom they are in. Are they in the kingdom of Satan or are they in the kingdom of God? Verse 20, true believers can really know the one true God. That's how he ends it. You can know the one true God. And then notice in verse 21, true believers must keep themselves from what? Idols, Idols, right out there to the side, false gods. So in verse 20, he is saying, be encouraged. You get to know the true God. And then what does he say immediately after that? Keep yourselves from the false gods. And so, notice the box at the top of the page. Let's notice this, see the context, and we come down to this very simple statement in verse 21. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Okay, so we've been delivered from that bondage. He's saying if you're really saved, something's going to change in your life. You're not going to go on like nothing happened. We, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but has been born, but he who has been born of God, that's Jesus, protects him, and then look at this one, and the evil one does not touch him. That means you've been delivered from Satan. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You can know whose team you're on. We are from God, but the world lies in the evil, one, the evil one's power. That's verse 19. 
Look at verse 20. And we know, so notice that the other things, the we know, we know, we know, look at verse 20, we know again, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him, underline it, him who is true. So not a false God, him who is true. And look what it says, and we are in, circle the word in. We are in him who is true. So that means that you're not in yourself, you're in Christ. Ephesians 1 talks about being in Christ, in Christ, in him. So look what it says, and we are in him who is true, in, and he's clarifying, in his son, Jesus Christ. And then here we go, he is the true God and eternal life. So John is just, just coming down to the very bottom line of the whole letter, and it's this, you can know God and you can have eternal life. Is that encouraging or what? Very weak response. Is that encouraging or what? You can know the true God. You can live forever. You can live forever with him. Sounds too good to be true. The world scoffs at it. The scientist that is the materialist and, and does not believe at all in the maker who created everything he studies, that just doesn't accept that. Those seem like foolish words to him. In fact, the Bible tells us that the gospel is foolishness to those who are passing away, but to those who are being saved. It is the truth in the words of life. And so... I rejoice that we can know the true God. And then we see this final statement. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So the whole letter has been saying this. The whole letter has been saying, don't worship the things of the world in a roundabout way. The whole letter has been saying, don't worship yourself. Don't live in falsehood because that's what idols are, it's falsehoods. The whole letter has been saying, don't go the way of our greatest and most fundamental temptation, which is to worship other things, to worship other gods. And here, John just cinches the sack when he finishes the letter, and he says, it all boils down to this, keep yourselves from idols, worship Verse 20, the one true God. So notice this, first of all, in our statement, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Notice the affectionate but humbling way by which the readers are reminded that they are vulnerable to serious deception and grave disobedience. You see, God's children need to constantly be reminded that there is falsehood around us and that we live in a dangerous world, a, fa a world that is dangerous to our faith in God. And so Christians are called to be ever vigilant about the falsehoods of the world lest they be carried away and deceived by them. And notice this, that it is affectionate. He calls them little children. Now, what I always find interesting about this, and you have to kind of think about John, the disciple's life. John was the youngest of the disciples when Jesus was alive. Um, all of the other disciples were older. John was the, he was the new kid. He was the young one, maybe even a late teenager. And John was very close to the Lord. Peter, James, and John, those three are kind of always together with the Lord. And John was just always, always there in a, in a special way. But all of the other disciples, as the decades go on, listen to this, all of them meet their demise. In fact, we believe that all of them died for their faith in Jesus. They were crucified on crosses. They were beheaded. They were stoned and left for dead. They were preaching the gospel faithfully. People would see how much they believed it by the fact that they were willing to die, and many were inspired. And so when we, when we think about how God's will and his plan is working out here, it seems brutal, but we, we come to see that if faith is what pleases him, and ultimately he is saying that don't, don't despair, I've overcome the world, 
If anyone dies, if he believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that is the great picture of our faith, is to die to self and to live to Christ. That's the great goal in all of this, because God has eternity waiting for us. He's just waiting to see what we're going to do with these little 70 or 80 or 90 years. We have the great privilege of being able to look forward to an endless eternity with him. And so there is this beautiful way in which John, now old, that didn't die a martyr's death, he's in exile on the island of Patmos and he's writing. And he writes these letters. He writes these letters late in the first century. And so there's been decades now of the church going forward. And now John is not the young man, but now John is the old man. And now John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because he's learned and he's seen enough that he knows that some will be deceived and some will leave the gospel. And he's saying, be aware of this serious deception and the grave disobedience of it. Notice the next thing that we see here. In verse 20, we notice that the one true God is the exact opposite of verse 21, the idols. I think this juxtaposition is beautiful. Um, just in the way we read it, maybe it becomes evident, but if somehow it wasn't evident, you know, and here's, here's an important statement. Many of us, when we first would read the end of 1 John and see this statement, we kind of feel like, why does he say, little children, keep yourselves from idols? I mean, that's just hanging out there all by itself. And I would say to you, absolutely not. It is really a foundational underpinning for the whole letter. It's really the picture of know the one true God and worship him. Enjoy him. Stay in him. And so there we see verse 20, the one true God. He makes a very big deal of that found in Jesus Christ. We have that great privilege and we juxtapose it against the false gods that are all around us. And then we see this final statement vividly exposes the underlying message of the entire letter. I've just been saying that. So this, this goes with the entire letter. This final statement is absolutely consistent with the key theme of the whole Bible, which is don't go out and worship other gods, but know the one true God. That's the message of the Bible. The Bible is saying to us, there is a God, he created you, he's the one true God. If you come to him and believe in him, he will save you and he will give you eternal life. That is the message of the Bible. Don't worship the false gods that are all around you. Worship the one true God. And then notice this, this final statement points to the statement of keep yourselves from idols. This final statement points to the first and second of the Ten Commandments. So Moses gives the Ten Commandments, or God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and we see them in Exodus chapter 20, it's one of the places where it's given. Look with me in Exodus 20 in verse 3 through 6, and the very first one, and put out there number one uh, to that first line that says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. So if God's going to boil it all down and make it really, really clear, get everybody on one tablet, as so to speak, that was a joke, <laughs> get everybody on one page, one tablet, stone tablets, remember? Okay, get everybody on one tablet, <laughs> two of them together, sorry. Okay, he's going to get everybody on one tablet, and here, here he's, he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first big thing he has to say. And then look at the next one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So he's, he's really, this is, this is really connected to the first one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above and that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. So he's, he's ruling out all of the things you might come up with to worship because that's what's going on with all the nations around God's people, all the nations around Israel. 
are doing that. Look what in the middle of that, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Read it out loud together, the bold part. What does it say? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That was very weak. Let's read it again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who, what? Hate me. And then look at the last part of this. Let's read it out loud. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Wow. I know you're turning over the page, but I want you to notice this. Look at this. He's saying, keep yourselves from idols. Does this not go back to the very basic things that show us, the Ten Commandments, that show us that we need God? And we see that we are prone toward idols. Let's unpack this a little bit on page two, humans and worship. You need to understand this, and this will help you as you understand the gospel altogether, humans and worship. Number one, a foundational thing for you to grasp is this, that humans are made to worship. That's what we were made to do. We have a tremendous capacity to worship. We have more capacity to worship than any other creature. There's no other creature that comes remotely close. And it's interesting that our worship not only has to do with our intellect, but it also has to do with our heart. Not only our intellect and our heart, our, our mind intellectually and our pathos and our, and our emotions, the seed of the emotions and who we are as a being, but listen to this, also our soma, our body. And so God, God values all of that. He, invalu- he values the mind, he values the heart, and he values our body. And so even with our body, we can worship him. Um, in ancient Anglican tradition, um, as part of the marriage vows, many of, many of the traditions within the Anglican tradition, part of the vows was with you, you would say, with you to your spouse, with my body, I worship thee. Now, that, that, that wasn't an, an, an idolatrous statement. That was simply an, a statement saying that even with my body, I come to serve you, I come to love you, I come to be committed to you. So with all that I am, um, we recognize that human beings are made for this. Now, last week, if you're thinking, Oh, that was on the thing last week. Yes, you're exactly right. This was on last week because I want to water it in. I want you to see this. We were made for worship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's a statement from 1646 by the Church of England and Scotland, 107 simple questions and answers. Question one, number one is, what is it? Read it out loud. Question number one is what? What is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? What's our raison d'etre? Look at the answer. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we were made to do. Now, put a big circle around all of those references underneath that because that's just a hint. That's just a smattering of verses that show us we were made for worship. We were made for this purpose. And in this, we find our greatest fulfillment because God created us to glorify him and to enjoy him. Now, there's some people in this present day and time would say, what an arrogant, selfish God. And I don't like that. I'd rather kind of do my own thing and kind of enjoy him if I want to, but I'm, I, that is ridiculous to think that God would create us for his glory. And I would say, well, you just wrote yourself off. You just proved that... Um, You don't get what his plan is. And I would beg you to think about what he's presented because let me tell you, the greatest fulfillment that your life could ever have is come to recognize who God is and his deserving nature of your worship and to come to live your life for his glory. That is when you will find your greatest fulfillment. Now, a selfish world rejects that. A selfish world, it simply thinks ill of God for that and desires to exalt self. 
as opposed to exalt God. And so we just want to recognize that humans are made for worship. And number two, humans always worship. They always are worshiping. That's what we do. We were made for that. We, were, we always worship. But here is the great question. The great question is not if you are worshiping. The great question is what you are worshiping. You live each day worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? May it be to God's glory that we would say, oh God, may each day of my life be turned toward worship of you in all that I do, the way that I live, what I do with my body, what I do with my time, what I do with my life, that it would be for the glory of God. Because we see in Scripture over and over and over again, that's what we're called. Let whether you eat or whether you drink, do all for the glory of God. So what does it mean, though? What does worship mean? Where does this word come from? Worship comes from two words put together, worth and ship. And so the worth part up there is that which is valuable, that which is cherished, that which is treasured something that has truly has value. And then the idea of ship is simply a suffix on, in the English language that means a state of being or a shape. And so the idea is this, you, you see it there. Think of friendship. So there's friendship. The idea is that you are a friend. You have a friend. You are a friend to someone. Someone is a friend to you. There is a friendship. This is the shape of your relationship, that it is friendly. Look at the next one there. Craftsmanship. So the idea of this person has the ability, has a craft, has a, has a, a profession that shows worth in this. How about sportsmanship? We, we, we see the idea of a sportsman who is the, who's the example of what should be. It's a virtue. And statesmanship, someone with true statesmanship that, that serves with, um, without concern for themselves, but for that which is right, for the, for the betterment of the, of the society. So we see this idea. So when we come to worship, what we're coming to do is saying, we are living in, in an example and in a function of assigning value to something. And so we worship. So church, so worship is this, fill it in. Worship is assigning, keyword here, pursuing, expressing, exalting value to something or to someone. So it's, that's what worship is. Well, what about not just humans and worship, but what about the next one here, humans and idols? What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is the idea of worshiping, especially as we look at it from a Judeo-Christian biblical perspective. Here's what it is. Idolatry is anything that interferes with obedience to and love of the one true God. So idolatry is when we go after false gods. This is the Judeo-Christian definition of what idolatry would be. And that idol, it may be a physical idol, and that's the reason we get commandment number two. Don't make for yourselves any graven image. Commandment number one is, don't have any gods before me. And commandment number two is, don't make for yourselves any graven image. So this could be a material possession or a material, you could even say creation. Or maybe this could be part of nature or nature itself. Do you know some people who seem to worship creation? seem to worship nature. Um, there are whole religions based upon that. Um, when we look at pantheistic beliefs, that can be the case. But there's, there's also um, some who, who really 
have either a general nebulous view of, of how they worship the creation or some a very well-defined view of, of how they worship creation. It, people very often do that somewhat subconsciously and passively. They, they walk through the mountains. They love to hike. They love to see the lakes. They love to see the streams. And they love to see the peaks and all of that. And they focus on the creation with no concept or dedication or exaltation of the creator. And so their great exaltation is the creation itself. Instead of saying, how did this get here? Where did this come from? Boy, he must be really good. And that's a, that's a very strangely empty and shallow faith. That's a very strange and empty, shallow worship. It's a false worship. We can, we can be environmentalists to the degree that we worship the creation instead of worshiping the creator. I am an, envi- an environmentalist. I do not believe in poor stewardship of this present world that God has given us. I believe it's sinful to destroy the world and to give no regard for that which is harmful to the environment that is around us. Though we've been given dominion and we should exercise that dominion, we must do so with a beautiful stewardship and a carefulness of that. But you can be a great environmentalist and not worship the creation. But for some people, that becomes their reason to exist. We must save the world. My friends, there is no individual plan or collective plan that is going to save the world from the curse of sin. There is only one Savior who will make it new again. That is simply the truth. But that doesn't mean that we do be good stewards of what God has given us. We, we do seek to be good stewards. So a part of nature. How about this? A sport. A hobby. I mean, do we not make sport very often the God of our lives? Is that not a great temptation? Do you know people who live themselves to play the game? The other day, I looked on one of the video cameras. It was early in the morning. We have over 100 cameras here on campus, and uh, one of them is there in the gym. And at 6.45 a.m., I won't mention which kid, but there was a kid that has made his way into the gym, you know, one of the, one of the uh, teacher's kids, they came very early, and he's out there shooting hoops at 6.45 a.m., and I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, look at that kid, he's passionate about this, he's having a ball, he's, 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 he's enjoying that. You know, we can, nothing wrong with that, but we can live our lives to where all we think about and all we dream about is this sport or this hobby or this thing. How about a person? Sometimes what we are so passionate about is a person. And maybe that's our own baby, our own child. Do you know that there's some parents who worship their own children? Their life revolves around their own children. Their greatest joy and their greatest concern, their greatest sorrow is just this child. And let me tell you, if you worship your child and you raise your child in a child-centered family, you're going to create a monster, a true monster. And we have a world that has gone to child-centered parenting that is creating monster after monster after monster. And what is the monstrous aspect of that? It's the me monster. Raising a child where the whole world comes to think that, wow, I have these two great big servants that are here for my every whim and want. And so I live my life, and their job is to serve me. And we don't have the sense to pull away and to know what true bringing a child into the era of responsibility and the worship of someone besides themselves so we as parents can worship our children. We can worship our grandchildren. I, I understand that more and more. I mean, you just look at him and you think he can do no wrong. Of course, when you don't have to change their diaper and you don't have to do those things, you can kind of think very positive things about them. I don't have to spank them. I don't have to do any of that. 
I just get to spoil them. You know, it's pretty great. I remember that when Marcy and I were moving overseas, a new show started on television. And I remember the first time I saw the, the title of it, it bothered me. Just seeing the title, I thought, is that good? An idol? I mean, are they, are they just kind of playing around? Yeah, they're kind of playing around. 20 years ago, American Idol starts in its 20th year. And of course, it wasn't just American Idol, but there's all kinds of other programs. Uh, I, from what I understand, America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, everything. And I've watched bits and pieces of them through the years. I, there, there's been a portion. I've never seen a full episode of any one of them. But in preparing for this message, I thought, you know, I'm so clueless about the culture sometimes. I need to go and look at this a little bit more. And so I did a little bit of research. I started reading and started looking and started watching some of them. And this latest 20th year is quite a fanfare. And you see Lionel Richie and Katy Perry and some guy named Brian. I have no idea who he is. And I have no idea who the other two people are either. But we, we see them and they're, they're there. And the whole idea of American Idol is to go find the next star. To go find the next talent. To exalt. And the God of entertainment begins to unabashedly talk in terms of this. And you know, words do mean things, Christians. Words do mean things. Well, as I just briefly clicked on a couple of things, I see this very young lady um, go and she sings and she performs beautifully. And of course, the drama of watching the judges look at that and rejoice in that and start talking about it. I, I was just kind of watching that and kind of taking it in. And I even found myself, you know, because they got all the music and they've got all the, the camera shots and they've edited the whole moment she gets up from the piano and they're exalting it. They're just talking about how great she is and, and everything else. And I was just sitting there watching it. And then I noticed the words that were being stated. And I even went back and I captured some screenshots for you. I want you to see this. The first thing was, Katy Perry says, get ready to become your own hero. I mean, she's speaking in such flowing adulation of this young lady and her performance. And, you know, the camera goes to her. Wow, I'm going to be my own hero. You know. Look what Lionel Richie says. He lifts his hands and what does he say? Hallelujah. Praise that is designed for the creator of the universe. He's not saying it to God. He's saying it to her. You say, how do you know that? Well, look what he says next. You have graced us because of your voice, your look, and your sound. You have graced us. These are, these are theological terms. Notice the next one. What does it say? I didn't make this up. You can go watch it. Don't do that. You can go watch it. Look what he says. He doesn't say, you're the answer to our prayers, as if they're directed to God. Look what he says. You've answered our prayers. You're the God. You're the, I mean, this isn't, this is the picture. And I know it's showbiz. But words mean things. And culture means that it affects us living in the world. We're not done. Look at what comes next. They declare to her, you're going to Hollywood! As if Hollywood is heaven. I mean, when you get to that point in it, look at that. Their arms are raised. Her, both of the guys, the Brian guy, his, he's looking up toward heaven. But he's looking up toward Hollywood. And Katy Perry, she's, she's just like, ah! 
I mean, these are, these are all a picture of worship. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. She goes on to say, I can't believe I'm worthy of all of this. That's what the young lady says. And then as she's hugging her mom, a lady, I don't, I don't know this family. I, I don't know them, but I, I just want to say to you, I, I look at Katy Perry herself, who was raised by um, Christians. She was raised singing songs in church. And she has rejected all of that. Her morality, her statements. I mean, the, the gal here is now adulating a, a young lady who claims to be a Christian, raised in a Christian home. And there's great danger as that Christian home is being sucked into the world. And the applause screams hallelujah. Now, friends, it's not just American Idol. I mean, it can be golf. It can be yachts. It can be grandchildren. It can be, how about this? It can be conservatism. Notice the next one that is here on your outline. I want you to see it. An idol may be not just a person or a possession. It can be conceptual. There can be a concept that is your idol. It can be a cause, a nationality. You know, some people worship their nationality. There are some Americans who equate being an American with being a Christian. At least on the same level. Be rebuked if that's you. Our citizenship is in heaven if we're truly Christians. And that is a far different citizenship than even the beauty of being an American. There's no comparison. It can be a nationality. Maybe for some right now it's Ukrainian. I'm Ukrainian or I'm Russian or I'm, I'm one of these, one of these that seems to be so important to me. How about a philosophy? A philosophy. Some people are ruled and reigned by a philosophy. They worship a philosophy or a certain virtue. Some people can look at something as, as beautiful and as good as kindness and make kindness their God, ignoring the one who designed kindness and from whom kindness comes. You see, you can come to worship a virtue, and I, and I pray that as you read bumper stickers and as you listen to commercials and as you read research papers and as you look at the world that is around you, you ask yourself, what am I worshiping and what is everybody else worshiping? Are we getting back to worshiping the one true God or are we somehow worshiping something besides him? You see, we can worship a right. That can become our great cause. The right to vote, the right to bear arms, the right for these things. Well, I'm all for the right to vote. I'm all for the right to bear arms. I own guns. I, that's great, but you know what? That's not what I worship. I love conservatism. I believe that conservatism is important. Don't even mind saying I love it. I believe that it's important. I believe that we should conserve that which comes from a Judeo-Christian value in our past, the traditions that are good, that are not flying off the handle in every whim that the society has. That's what conservatives do. They seek to conserve. They seek to be careful in that. I make no apologies about being a political and social conservative as much as it points toward biblical values. But my friends, I don't worship the principles of conservatism. You see, we can, we can fall into all kinds of worship that is not looking to God. We can worship a feeling. We can live for a feeling. We can worship an experience. We can worship a vacation 
or a desire for a place on the earth. I do. I mean, there's places on the earth that I miss, that I would love to go back to, that I don't have the opportunity so much now to go back to. But you know, I I know some people that they just, they love the earth. They worship being able to go back to the Colons in southern France, or the Alps in Switzerland, or the Kilimanjaro in Africa. We don't live for this world. We don't live to worship this world. Some people worship an escape. And it can come from many different times. And what about this one? Entertainment. Increasingly, we live in a society that obsesses with entertainment. We've just been looking at an example of that, a person, a a whole ID, a whole industry of entertainment. Of course, there's some people who can worship work, kind of the exact opposite of entertainment. <laughs> Friends, there's an endless number of things for you to worship. We need to also recognize and fill this in, we're going to keep moving. An idol may be something you fear and seek to appease. So you worship it with your fear. Now, you say, what do you mean? My friends, I used to live in Africa. And I know that there were people who truly feared their ancestors. And so they would worship their ancestors. They would seek to appease their ancestors. They would offer offerings and sacrifices and do sometimes even self-harm for the pacification of an ancestor or for the pacification of demons. They, they worship demons. They worship a, a witch doctor. They're under that. So they live in subjection, in fear. And so what are they, what are they paying homage to? What are they in fear of? You see, it's not always the thing that you just Adelaide over and love, sometimes it can be the very thing that you fear. There are some people who fear bankruptcy. There are some people who fear retirement. They fear health problems. They fear what's going to happen with their kids. They fear the other things around them. And those fears can become a God to them. How about an idol may be something you love? and seek to enjoy. We've kind of mentioned that already. How about this? An idol may be something that you admire and seek to exalt. And it can be any number of things. I'm I'm hesitant to name them because I'll miss yours. I mean, my mind doesn't go to knitting. But some of you, it may be, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get the knitting thing under. I'm trying not to worship. I, I love knitting. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it wouldn't be knitting, but I mean... I, we're all different and we all have different temptations. You see, Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6, we've seen it. It says, you shall have no other gods before me and no graven images. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 5, and read it out loud together with me. I am the Lord and there's no other besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. He's saying, I I am God. You don't even know what all I do for you. But there is no other. You can look around. You will not find another God. I am the one true God. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. So very important. We see that the Lord is one. There's not many gods. There's one Lord. There's one God. And this is called the great Shema. Shema means the, to hear. So it's the call to hear, and it's the call to obey. Look what it says. Hear, O Israel. And this is, this is perhaps the most important passage for both ancient Jews and modern-day Jews. This is the passage that they turn to for practically everything. And so here we look and we see this underpinning for everything. Look what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here it is. Read it out loud together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he goes on to say, God says, 
You shall teach this to your children when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. It shall be on the doorposts of your house. This is to be everywhere with you, that you are to love God and to worship him only. This is the great call of God. You see, fill it in. Idolatry is anything that gets between you and God. And so idolatry, don't turn it over yet. Think about this. Idolatry is the underpinning sin that comes and can, that can corrupt everything from the, that, it, that it stands on. This is the reason the first commandment would be, you shall have no other gods before me. So idolatry is anything that gets between you and God. And John is saying, little children, you know the one true God, keep yourselves from idols. We live in a world that is prone toward idols. Very quickly, I'll just show you this. I I think this is, these are beautiful truths. Um, We're going to fly through this. Number one, in the Bible, there's no more serious charge than idolatry. You need to understand that is the, the greatest sin that the Bible gives both in Old Testament and in New Testament, putting something else before God, exalting something else besides the Holy Spirit. This is as bad as it gets, worshiping a God that is not the true God. Number two, idolatry called for the strictest of punishments. You can read the punishments for idolatry there from the Old Testament that show us that. And the most extreme avoidance. We see in in Exodus 23 and verse 13, they were told, don't even speak the names of the gods that are around you. Don't even name them. So, you know, well, Moloch over here. They were told, "This this is so serious that you cannot name the gods that are around you lest you begin to become desensitized to them and begin to worship them. This is a very serious thing. The strictest punishments come and the greatest extreme avoidance is declared for that. Number three, idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God. Because you're, you're becoming faithful to something else besides God. So it's unfaithfulness to God. Number four, idolatry is heavily condemned in the New Testament as well. Look at just this beginning of passages. And notice at the end of that list of passages, where do we find a bunch that are there toward the end of that? In the book of Revelation. So we see that idolatry is a big deal all the way through for all time. Number five, God is righteously jealous. Fill that in. He even names himself jealous. In Exodus 34, it says he is the one who's called jealous. Now, here's the picture and here's the reason for that. He will not tolerate a rivalry. He will not be rivaled. He will not share his lover. He will not share Israel with other gods. He will not share you with other gods. He says, Clay, I want to be your only God. No other gods, Clay. Only me. He won't share you with other things. How about this? Think about all the positive things in this that this indicates about his love for you. You know, if you think about him being a jealous God that he won't tolerate you worshiping other things, he won't tolerate others here, that says a lot about how much he loves you. That he won't share you. How about this? Number six, there are two anthropomorphic metaphors that reveal the way God relates to humanity, and they both have to do with idolatry as well. The metaphor of marriage, which is a husband and a wife, God says, I'm your husband, you're my wife, and and I've called you. We see this in Christ in the church. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And so we see the purity of a marriage. And we see this in Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. We see that when when something seeks to, when, when the nation, listen to this, here's the point. When the nation of Israel starts to worship other gods, God is saying, you're being unfaithful to me 
as an unfaithful wife would be to her husband. And Hosea, part of the picture is, he says, I will still love you. This is his committed love. How about this? The metaphor also, the second one, the second major one is a righteous king, a king and his people. So a king who is a righteous king and a good king, he's not going to tolerate his people going and serving other kingdoms. We see this in the scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is there and they say, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations have. And God is saying, let me be your king. And the people say, no, Samuel, get us a king. And Jesus, or the father would say, they have rejected me as king, and he yet loves them. But we see this intensity of that. Now, we see that there are some who would continue in their rejection and would be lost and damned forever. There's others who turn in righteousness to the righteous king. In both cases, look at this, in marriage and in the righteous king, in both cases, exclusivity is central and unequivocal. This is the picture that he demands exclusive relationship. He will not share you with another. Can you imagine if your husband or your wife said, I love you, but I also love her or him or it or they? Some of you have had that happen. And you know the rage you know the rejection of that. Some of you have said, well, I did that. And you know the betrayal. Listen, we serve a God who says, I will not share you with anyone. I will not share your affections. I call you to know and to love me. Number seven, interestingly enough, the New Testament unambiguously and most prominently declares greed to be idolatry. This is very interesting. Greed comes up over and over and over again. I've only mentioned three. There are numerous more that say, you want to know what idolatry looks like? It looks like covetousness or greed. Notice in Colossians 3, 5, uh, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and what does it say? And covetousness, right below covetousness, greed, because that's, that's the picture there. And then it says, look what it says, which is idolatry? Look at Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who, or who is covetous, covetous, and then look at the parentheses there. I didn't put that there. This is in the original text. That is an idolater. So covetousness, greed, is an idolatry. Look at this. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? And money. That is the picture. So what do we do? What is the hope? How do we deal with this? Number eight gives us great hope. The antidote for idolatry is faith, love, and obedience in Christ. That's the antidote. That is how idolatry is killed in your life. Idolatry is killed in your life when you turn in faith to God, when you trust God, when you come to love God, when you obey God, that is what kills idolatry. Look at the very last verse in that long section that is there, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That seeking first is having no other gods before him. Just a few thoughts for you this week as we finish 1 John. I want to encourage you to take this sheet home and spend some time with the Lord this week. Look at the back page. 
I want to encourage you to come before the Lord and say, Lord, what things, play, person, place, thing, or idea am I tempted to put before God in my life? Can you list them? Some of these are asking another way just to hopefully get to your heart. Do I ever value anything more than God? Does anything rival him in my heart or mind? If yes, what? And ask yourself the question, why? Third one there, do I place things in place of my worship of God? Are there other things that I put there? If so, what are they? If I refuse to read my Bible, what do I do instead? Mm. That might help you define what are you putting ahead of God? If I make excuses not to worship with his people, why? What do I value instead? Is it sleep? Is it independence? Is it other things? You say, well, we're here. Yes, that's good. Are you here regularly? Is this your habit? Third one there. If I choose my sin over obeying God, what sin am I valuing more than walking in fellowship with him? Because if you're walking in sin, you're not walking in fellowship with him. Some other things that may be helpful. Really think through this. What things consume my time That would be all of your time. What things consume my free time, quote unquote, that may help you. What consumes my money? What things am I most passionate about? Well, ask yourself this question. Are they from God? Are they for God? Maybe you need to ask about what things you're afraid of. Maybe you've subtly been worshiping a threat or a fear. Well, this last part is important. God's word indicates that I should be doing some things. I should be doing. These are spiritual disciplines. These are for the worship of God. And just just notice these and, and very quickly fill in a few of them. You should be growing in knowledge of God through learning his word. You should be growing in knowledge of God through learning his word. If you're not, why are you not? Is there a God in in the way of that? You should be worshiping with his people, not apart from them. Hebrews 10 says that. If you're not, why are you not? You should be growing in prayer and in faith. This is a spiritual discipline that Christians do, that we grow in prayer and faith. If you're not praying, if you're not growing in faith, what idol might be in the way? You should be sharing the gospel with who? Lost people, people who don't know Jesus. If you're not, why are you not? Are you afraid or do you not care? Is there apathy? Is there ignorance? Is there a God that's keeping you from that? What about growing in financial management and generous giving? It's very clear that that's what we see in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that Christians are to be people that are growing in their faithfulness and they're growing in their generosity. Do you? Where does your money go? Are there idols? How about this last one? Carefully teaching my children to genuinely love and obey God. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says. Am I doing that? Or is there something more important to me? Is there something more important to me? This week, ask yourself at the bottom there, am I willing to identify and tear down idols that rob God of my worship? Am I just going to hold on to these things that are opposed to him, these interests, these entertainments, these other things that are, that are just gutting my mind and my heart? Am I going to hold on to those or am I going to say, you know what? The one true God is the one I worship. I'm not going to worship these other gods that are against him. You see, John wrote what he wrote for a reason. And we need to ask ourselves, am I keeping myself from idols? 
how am I doing that or how am I not doing that? I think you need to take some time this week and spend some time evaluating your faith in Jesus, evaluating your walk with Jesus, and allow 1 John to have its full effect in growing you in faith and in holiness. Amen? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, this morning we do give to you this series. We give to you the message of 1 John. We pray that it would find its mark in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who worship the one true God alone, that we do not worship the things of this world, that we say that, Father, you and you alone are the one true God, that you are worthy and that you are worth it. Lord, help us to come and die to ourselves and live to Christ, I pray. Has God been revealing to you idols in your heart? Maybe one stuck out immediately. Friend, I call you to surrender it, lay it down, break it to pieces. Maybe as time goes on, you'll continue to say, Lord, I don't want idols. Would you help me? Lord, to sort them out, that I would grow in my spiritual disciplines, walking with you, learning of you, serving you, obeying you, proclaiming you, so that I'm ready for heaven. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to worship you and you alone. Would you sing together?